Suicides in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how you doing, sir? Well, it's uh, it's great to talk to you again. Uh, um, we're, the the secret is we're recording these episodes back to back due to our scheduling over the over the winter break. So, um, yeah, back to and back now like we're gonna Drake. be what I said back to back like Drake. It's a song by Drake. Back-to-back. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Of course you didn't. Why would you? Um. Anyway, so today we're going to be talking about Moses 1 and Abraham 3. Is there anything we need to say before we get started? Yeah, let me just go ahead and read these spots real quick. Before we go ahead and launch into uh, Moses 1 and Abraham 3, I want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So as Brother Derek was saying, we are in uh, the books of Moses chapter one and Abraham chapter three. These are in the Pearl of Great Price, and these are part of the uh, new Old Testament year. Uh, And uh, we'll probably save the conversation about uh, the Hebrew Bible slash Old Testament for when we actually start a conversation on Genesis, because I am going to want to say a few things, you know, about our study of the Old Testament generally uh, this year. But, um, you know, just for the sake of this holiday time and also for, you know, I don't know, just keeping the episode a little shorter, we'll save that discussion for then. Otherwise, we'll probably not get to what we want to talk about with regard to Moses 1 and Abraham 3. Yeah, well, I wanted to to jump in and say, um, well, a little bit about the the Moses text. So, yeah. Joseph in 1830 started his uh, revision, his inspired revision of the Bible, and this was not a translation in any um, uh, sort of what we normally think of a translation of someone who knows one knows two languages. Uh, going word by word and changing it into uh, the other language. So Joseph at this point did not know Hebrew or Greek. And so he was just basically revising the King James Version, um, making a few tweaks and then adding some substantial things elsewhere. And so that's where we get the JST. Now, the JST... Like, Latter-day Saints like to quote it all the time like it's authoritative. It's not. Like, it's not canonical. It's never been canonized uh, in the church. Uh, For years, we didn't even have it. We knew that the reorganized had it, and it didn't have much of an influence in the Utah church up until the 20th century. So it's not like the JST was really formative, with the exception of certain portions like Moses and the Joseph Smith-Matthew piece, which were actually canonized uh, as part of the Pearl of Great Price. But other than that, the JST is not uh, canonical. And I really want to frame both Moses and Abraham in terms of what I call reception history. Well, not what I call. That is what reception history is. So the reception history of the Bible is the study, not so much of the Bible itself, but how it's been received, how it's been translated, or how it's been interpreted, or how it's been preached, or how it's been... um, uh, processed in the uh, in the um, succeeding generations of Christianity, and so I think when we talk about Moses one and Abra- or Moses and Abraham, we really need to s- 
to focus in on seeing them as part of the reception history of the King James Version. And I don't think that that should be conf- uh, any, you know, really, um, what's the word, uh, controversial because, like, uh, I think there's a conformity between faith and reason. I think that if we do the best with our faith and the best with our reason, we will end up um, converging on some similar things, right? And that uh, that we don't have anything to be afraid of. The truth is truth, and we just seek the truth wherever it comes from. That's how we we ended up as Latter Day Saints. And I don't think we should be afraid of the academic um, scrutiny of our texts. And so the challenge is coming at Moses one both as a historian and as a scientist, right? Because you can look at that and see, well, like, what? how did we get this text? And and then as a scientist, like, what does this say about Adam and Eve or evolution or the age of the earth and all these other things? And I probably won't get into that this week. But I do want to um, share some things that I learned, and I'm going to be drawing heavily upon an article by the scholar um, Colby Townsend. Brother and Colby. this, yep. This article was published in uh, in 2020, October 2020, in the Journal of Mormon History, and this is entitled "Translation as Expansion: The Method of Joseph Smith's Revision of Genesis in Moses One and Seven. And did you get a chance to look at this? Yeah, I got to look at some of this. It's not a horribly long paper, so okay. But yeah, I was able to skim it. So and and here here gets back to the issue of genre again. There's been a, a couple of uh, terms that have been thrown about. One would be rewritten Bible, and we've got other examples of rewritten Bible, such as um, the Book of Jubilees. But there's also rewritten Bible within the Bible. If we look at how Mark was used by Matthew and Luke, or how um, uh, Deuteronomy used the earlier sections of the Torah, or how mm-hmm. um, First and Second Chronicles used Samuel and Kings, right? And so we've got rewritten Bible even within the Bible. Mm. But anyway, um, uh, we've we've been cautioned not to use the terms midrash or targum, uh, which actually are are Jewish terms, uh, specifically Jewish ways of, of interpreting and uh, receiving the text. And also, that's not exactly what G- what Joseph was doing anyway, and I'm not going to get into the details about that other than um, to say uh, Joseph is doing something here, and historians like Colby Townsend are trying to reconstruct what Joseph was doing with the text. And this is, it looks like a quiet... Um, small means process. Like, I don't think that we should be surprised if Joseph looked up stuff or if he used text or went to commentaries in the production of this uh, text because it's by simple means that great things come to pass. And I also think about what Luke says in the prologue to Luke where Luke says that he used sources, right. like he was aware of sources. I At first I thought, oh, no, if it if there's using sources, then it can't be, in, you know, it's... it's uh, not inspired or it's not whatever, but no, I think that God can quietly superintend the inspiration process in such a way that um, the prayerful use of sources and the stitching together of text is actually how we get a lot of our scriptures, both in the Bible and elsewhere in our Latter-day Saint canon. Right. 
And I want to talk about, I just want to quote one, one uh, well, I'll probably be quoting from Colby a couple of times here. Uh, but here's what it says. It says, Smith's textual predictions, like the Book of Mormon, several sections of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Book of Abraham, and especially the Book of Moses, work similar to how the authors of Deuteronomy interacted with and built upon their sources. Smith utilized texts from all over the Bible in diverse and creative ways to compose his new literature. I also want to talk about this category of sacred literature called pseudepigrapha. Pseudepigraphy is the, the practice of um, attributing to a famous uh, individual uh, a certain text, and this attribution is not literal, but it's a literary device. It's part of a... Um, so the Moses of Moses... One here isn't the historical Moses, but it's the literal. Uh, it's a literary character, and so these these things are placed in the voice of the character Moses. But if you went back to the historical Moses and showed him this, he's like, "Yeah, this this isn't. I didn't write this. This isn't. This isn't mine. It's not from this century. It's not addressing what I'm addressing." Right. So. Mm-hmm. I don't think that should be controversial if you frame it. I mean, it, is that similar right? to what uh, these writings of Paul, quote-unquote Paul, were? The ones that actually weren't written by Paul, but more right, than likely... Right, right, So kind of like that? Yes, exactly. Okay. Right. There's um, uh, uh, writings attributed to Paul in the New Testament. For me, I, I, uh, I'm willing to, to open a little bit of a case for the authenticity of these writings of Paul and saying, well, maybe it was originally written by Paul and then later revised or there was a kernel of Paul's teachings that got later uh, written down by um, a, 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 su- a successor or something like that after Paul's death. Mm-hmm. Now, here's why it's not forgery. And the reason why it's not forgery is because the whoever wrote them was known by the community to speak in the name of Paul. By definition, like these texts would not have been circulated and not have been preserved and not have been received the way they were if the author of them was not known uh, to the community to have the authority to speak in the name of Paul. Like whether it's a disciple of Paul, whether it's an assistant of Paul, or whether it's a scribe of Paul or something. So there's, uh, it's, uh, it's different than forgery, is what I want to say. Mm-hmm. And so, anyway, let's talk about what's going on here, because what happens is, to summarize, is that uh, Joseph, in the composition of Moses 1, works... Um, works together material from Exodus, from uh, Genesis, from basically uh, even from the New Testament, right? So we've got some dependence on the English King James Version of the New Testament showing up here in Moses 1, mm-hmm. just to show you a little bit about how, about how, this, how this works. So let's, let's dive into some of these things. Um, one example is uh, you've got this temptation narrative— Yes, sir. And this temptation narrative is explicitly, uh, when you compare it, dependent on the temptation narrative of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. Mm-hmm. So this composition must uh, post-date the, the New Testament. It must post-date uh, the King James Version. And here's what Colby says. In fact, um, the version of Deuteronomy 6.13, so this is what happens is... Uh, 
we get the quotation of, okay, verse 12 of Moses 1. And it came to pass that when Moses had said these words, behold, Satan came tempting him, saying, Moses, son of man, worship me. And then later in verse uh, 13, it says, And it came to pass that Moses looked upon Satan and said, Who art thou? For behold, I am a son of God in the similitude of his only begotten. And where is thy glory that I should worship thee? And then, oh, well, I'm not even fine. The, ugh, hold on. I'm so confused right now. Take your time. Because, um, well, anyway, ooh, let me just go back and find, oh, it's verse 15 is what I want. Wait, oh, yes, okay, that's what I want, 15. Then verse 15 says, and I can judge between thee and God, for God said unto me, worship God, for him only shalt thou serve. And then in 16, it says, get thee hence, Satan. And so here's interesting. So this is taken from Matthew 4.10. So we've got a quotation of Deuteronomy 6.13 that Jesus is quote that Jesus quotes in his own temptation that says um, uh, that we should worship the Lord alone. And it turns out that the version that we have in Moses 1.15 is to write, taken directly from the Matthew version, and it's not even the version that we have in Deuteronomy 6.13. Hmm. And then there's other indications that we have in Moses, um, this get thee hence Satan, which is found specifically in Matthew's version. It's not in uh, Luke's version. In Luke uh, 4 is the parallel. And um, we don't have this phrasing anywhere else in the King James Bible. Get thee hence, Satan. And then we have Satan departing with weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And this appears in Matthew. Um, well, the weeping and gnashing of teeth appears in Matthew a number of times and in Luke once. And then wailing and gnashing of teeth occurs in Matthew 13. And so the combination of these two, actually, where you have uh, them the blended together to have weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, is actually found in a number of preachers in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. And so uh, Colby Townsend documents this. And so it looks like we've got some common places of 19th century preaching that don't exist in the Bible, but they're... Um, end up in this text. And I don't think this should challenge people's faith because it is what it is, and it's actually more inspired to know how it came about because to to interpret this as, oh, this is literally what Moses wrote, you will have all, sort of, all sorts of distortions. But when you actually look at how it was created in its context, and this is what a historical criticism is, is trying to look at who wrote it, how they wrote it, why they wrote it, when they wrote it, and situating it in the historical context of its time. And it comes alive when you do that. You actually get to see the creative process behind it, the genius behind it, the inspiration behind it. Like nothing makes sense if you 
try to take this text and put it in the in the lifetime of Moses. But everything makes sense when you try to put it into the context of the reception history of the Bible in 19th century America. And what that does is it allows you to interpret the text better because you can't understand what's going on. You can't understand what it's doing if you if you don't know what it's going. And I think there's an art mm-hmm. to how Joseph sutured all these things together, uh, including texts from the New Testament. Like we have the, uh, in Moses 1.3, the without beginning of days or end of years coming from Hebrews 7.3. This only begotten business, this is n- completely foreign to the world of Moses, but it is at home in the King James Version uh, of of the Gospel of John in Hebrews 11 and in 1 John 4. And then I love the fact that you're folding in John 1, 14, that Jesus is full of grace and truth. And you see this in verse 6. And so you also have some intertextual echoes with the Book of Mormon and Doctrine and Covenants that Colby Townsend goes through, but I'm not going to go into mm-hmm. those. But what are your reactions to this? Like, is this... What's this going to do? Ooh. Um, I don't believe I can answer this question too specifically in terms of what this does. Like, I hope it gives us both a critical lens and a lens of grace through which to read the text. This uh, context that you highlighted matters with the intertextual echoes and how the Book of Moses came to be. And we should keep that context in mind as we read the text and utilize it. I, I suppose... Most generally, this shows, again, what we've been acknowledging as um, human fingerprints in the in the text. It does. And I think here's the payoff for people's practical lives, right? Like people are like, well, what is this all this scholarship? Like, yeah, like, why do I care about the history of this text? But it gets back into the fact of it's okay to name human fingerprints all over God's work, right? Absolutely. Because when I do when I do God's work, it's going to have my human fingerprints all over it. When my bishop, bless his heart, does God's work, it's going to have his human fingerprints all over it. So we have to, we can learn so much um, in terms of practical and pastoral sensitivities from a real sense of what the text is and what it's not. And I think there's never a problem searching for truth. I think it's pretty clear that when you um, when you look at the text as a historian, right, you can see um, how it how how the composition took place. And let me just read one more thing from uh, sort of to summarize from Colby Townsend. Here's what it says: The composition of Moses one is dependent on the New Testament. The author utilizes late 18th and early 19th century oral updates for several New Testament texts and was dictated by Joseph Smith to his descri- to his scribes in the middle of 1830, soon after the publication of the Book of Mormon. It likewise shares several phrases that are unique in the Mormon canon to the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants. All of this indicates that this chapter not only originated with Smith, but that in composing it, he utilized his knowledge of the Bible and his experience growing up in a biblically saturated sermonic and performance culture to create a new scriptural text. Hmm. So I still, there's no, to me, especially learning what I've learned from the New Testament, what the, the prologue to Luke says, there is nothing inconsistent 
with an inspired prophet or apostle using sources and remixing them and reworking them and mm -hmm. updating them. And that's exactly what we have or should expect when we have a process of line upon line revelation. Mm -hmm. That makes but anyway, sense. I want to hear, like I've been doing too much talking, now Now I want to hear what you have to say, especially about the, the temptation. The temptation narrative, yeah. yeah. Um, I was fascinated with uh, the temptation narrative this week. I thought it was a brilliant timing in my life to get to be able to read this, um, uh, this narrative because, you know, I got to read it a little bit differently. And uh, I think, as you said, Derek, kind of hold that in... Uh, conversation with the events in my life, as well as the temptation of Christ in, I think, what is it, Matthew or Mark 4, one of those two? Matthew uh, 4. Matthew 4 and Luke 4, thank you. Um, but, you know, I, I hate to do it, Derek, but this goes back to our conversation on the family proclamation. Um, mm -hmm. I was thinking a lot about that. I was thinking about, uh, you know, kind of the drama in my own life, and my uh, mind caught hold of, you know, this question again that you asked um, and just what it means to what it means to worship Christ and what it means to be a child of uh, a child of God. Now, let me just read like we, we have to put, first of all, this verse. This is Moses one verse 14. We have to put mm -hmm. this in conversation with what Moses has just barely learned about himself. Moses one fourteen says, um, or sorry, not Moses one fourteen. This is uh, Moses 1. Okay, this is Moses 1, 12, actually. So this is Satan approaching him. And it came to pass that when Moses had said these words, behold, Satan came tempting him, saying, Moses, son of man, worship me. That, those were the words of Satan to Moses. Now, this is significant because what Moses just learned about himself, we can see in verse 10, first of all, he says at the end of verse 10, I know that man is nothing, which thing I had never supposed. That is relevant. And then we also learn Moses learning about himself, particularly his divine identity. We have in verse 7, God addressing Moses as his son. God speaking here, mm -hmm. now behold, behold this one thing I show unto thee, Moses, my son, for thou art in the world now, and I show it unto thee. And he also says in verse six, Moses, my son, thou art in similitude of mine only begotten and my only begotten is and shall be the savior. This is significant what Satan is trying to do to Moses. Satan is trying to make Moses believe that he is less than what God has already affirmed him to be. This is what Satan regularly does in our lives today. And this is why I called uh, Elder Holland's words satanic from like back in August or whatever. It was pretty strong language to, by some people's standards, but this is why it's satanic because it de it denies the imago dei. It denies the, the image of God, the divine identity that is actually already inscribed in our very being, in our queer siblings by calling them something that they are mm -hmm. not. In mm -hmm. Satan's case, he is calling Moses son of man. He is denigrating his divine identity. Elder Holland, in speaking those words that he did, um, you know, back in August in the name of Christ, supposing that queer folks are not entitled to the authentic expression of their identity because Christ said so, even when he didn't, that is satanic. It is denying people 
the identity that God has already revealed to them. It is denying people the divine spark that already exists in them. It denies them their humanity, the, um, I suppose, right to exist as the rest of us are already believe ourselves to be entitled to exist solely on virtue of orientation. Right. So like this temptation, this isn't just Satan telling people that they are son of man as opposed to son of God. This is anybody who uses any part of your immutable identity to deny you a degree of humanity that they believe themselves to be entitled to solely on the basis of those identities. This is manifest in patriarchy, white supremacy, uh, you know, straight mm-hmm. supremacy, you know, all kinds of supremacy. Yeah, ableism. Ableism. Yeah, definitely like, an ableism because that is big is a, a big time situation about how people are situated, how their bodies are situated, um, mm-hmm, their mm-hmm. characteristics. Big time, big time. So like this particular narrative, this particular temptation narrative, this uh, spoke to me differently simply be like, again, I can't go into uh, too much detail, but, you know, I got in trouble for pointing this out. And, um, mm-hmm. but it's know, no different than what Jesus said to Peter. He said, get he behind called him me, Satan. Satan. Mm-hmm. He called Peter Satan, you know? Yep. That is, that is, yeah, I, I still, yeah, I, I'm still blown away by that. Just the fact that. Yeah. Be like Jesus and call an apostle Satan. <laughs> we should make that well a bumper said. sticker or a t-shirt. Be make like Jesus. And then. Call an apostle Satan. A senior apostle Satan. The yeah. senior most apostle Satan. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, um, I mean, and that should not give us pride, like, oh, I'm glad I'm not like that particular apostle, but it should give us all a little humility, saying, you know what? Oh, absolutely. We could all fall into that very easily, and we all do, yeah, right? We, we just all have do. to. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the point. Like, that yeah. is why this is labeled a temptation. That is why the language used here is Satan came to tempt Moses, because this is something that we are actually tempted with, both to do to other people and to believe ourselves. We talked about this when we discussed the family proclamation about the Nazis. Um, mm-hmm. And we like to view the Nazis as monsters because, you know, we wouldn't, we surely wouldn't mm-hmm. do anything like what they did. But at the same time, we have seen profound moments in our history where our lack of humanity has been on full display. We can see that kind of now, like we're not, like the Nazis aren't some unattainable degree of monster that we could never mm-hmm. become. They are the fact you that know, we they have learned. Some mm-hmm. do, do people know this that the Nazis actually looked at at segregationist America mm-hmm. and learned from us, like what we did to Native Americans and what we did to Black folks. They learned from us some of the stuff that they that they did. It's it's a uh, it's not. Um, not something that's easy to say, right? Or easy nah. to hear. No, no absolutely. And, it, you know, I, I told you this when we discussed the Family Proclamation. I had to sit with all these uh, similarities, these parallels between our family values and theirs and mm-hmm. reckon with the fact that, hey, we may not actually be that different and we could be just as capable of similar dehumanizing atrocities as anybody else, like this isn't something that we are exempt from or something that we can believe too highly of ourselves for, because even though we haven't committed, you know, those acts of genocide, what we are doing at this moment is denying people their humanity. Well, we have, oh, I just want to say we have committed acts of genocide. It's just that we haven't done any real recently. Yeah. Anyone's recently. So that is, that is worth saying. Thank you, Derek. 
and I just want to say, like, people, I've talked on and on about LGBT stuff for years and years and years. And people want to make it out like it's some hard thing. You have to go to graduate school in gender studies. I'm going to make it real easy for you. Every listener, just you have one question to ask yourself and answer. And everything hinges on this one question. Are my people fully human? That's it. If you answer yes, that we are truly and fully human like everyone else, then you will admit that we should have the opportunity for full human lives. That the same thing that everyone else considers to be a full part of a a basic, simple part of a full human life, like forming a family, um, identifying as the gender that you know yourself to be, like living authentically, everything that you would want for yourself as a human, you would want for us. Now, if you deny that we're fully human, then there's no injustice that's off the table. You could do anything to us. You can deny us anything um, if you don't think we're fully human. I think this is this gets back to it. Like, it's real easy. Are we fully human? Should we have the opportunity for a full human life? Yes or no? Just answer that. And you'll get everything you need to know. Some people might say no, right? We're not fully human. We don't, we don't deserve to have the blessings that straight people do. Like, but yeah. It's uh, it's it's to me a really easy question. Like I don't know why it's so hard for, um, for 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 folks in the church sometimes. Like, I suppose because we've been told and conditioned so long to view our, I, mm-hmm. I suppose our bigotry as benevolent and not oh, as the yeah, that's even worse than than like hateful bigotry. Right, right. Because we honestly believe we are doing it out of love or doing it for, you know, holy reasons. And I forget who's credited with the quote, but, you know, in nothing does man so cheerfully do evil as when he believes that he's doing good. And, you know, that in the name of Christ Mm -hmm. or whatever deity they they worship. And I want to name something that I that I think is is the case is that many activists get faced with the same temptation that Jesus faced, the temptation to compromise your principles, to sell your soul to the devil, to get ahead a little bit in the world. That, you know, all you have to do is just bow down to me this one time, no one's going to know, and you'll get all the kingdoms of the world. That actually is tempting, right? That's the temptation to Christ back uh, back in Matthew 4. Yeah, and that's the temptation that activists have today. Like, you could very easily just tweak a little bit and compromise a little bit, sell your soul a little bit, and you can get a lot of money. You can get a lot of book deals. You can get the world if you're a queer person who's willing to, to sell a little piece of your queerality. But every every activist, and even activists are saying, well, let me just get a little bit of privilege uh, this wrong way, and then I can use that for good, right? See, that's the temptation, right? Like, oh no, maybe my voice will do good if it gets a little bit wider amplification. If I, mm-hmm. if I buy into this thing, or if I give into this, then I'll then I'll get this thing that I can. Yeah, that's the temptation. It's so hard to make the sacrifice. And it's also a lie. <laughs> yeah, right. Because yeah. that's what we learn from Christ. It isn't just the outcome; it's the whole method. Is the is the piece itself. And it's, uh, but it is so tempting, right? And uh, and I think a lot of people 
uh, Latter-day Saints have been tempted to cooperate with the injustice. And uh, mm-hmm. it's more often than not that they succumb to the temptation and get the get the benefits, get those uh, worldly benefits, and get the power that comes from it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I imagine that Dr. King must have been tempted many times to give up and say, you know what, I'll just use, I, I can just kind of, because he had some real unpopular opinions. He could have kept those to himself and actually done some other stuff, right? Right. It, that he wanted to do. But he, um, and I think a lot of white people today don't realize how unpopular Dr. King was. He's a hero now. Um, but he get, went to jail like yeah, at least a dozen times. Yeah, people didn't times. like him. Like people right. thought he, people hated him. He, he was not a saint in the, in the American public. He was a rabble rouser. He was. A, he talks about this, and yeah. he was following the path of Jesus. And he could have very easily kept some of his more controversial things to himself, like his opinion on on war or or capitalism or mm-hmm. or some of these other things. He could have like just just stuck to the. Like I don't know why people make Dr. King out to be the the nice one, right? Like he wasn't. <laughs> he wasn't. He was like not. people like, oh, why can't you be more like Dr. King, right? Do you know Dr. King? <laughs> they like, <laughs> that that is infuriating, man. People like this is the other thing. Like people love to hold Dr. King up as the model of respectability, not knowing that he was literally one of the most rabble rousing Negroes who ever mm-hmm. lived. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, Just, and that's why they killed him. They literally killed him. Right. He made so much trouble that he got himself killed. I'm not blaming himself, blaming him for his death, but you know what I mean? Like he could have Absolutely. avoided his death. You know, Jesus could have avoided his death too if he just if he stopped preached. being Jesus. Right, if he just preached simple little truths that made people feel good, like he would not have gotten any the attention of of the Roman authorities. Like he could have right. saved his life by just preaching flowers or whatever. Preaching flowers. <laughs> he didn't preach flowers, he preached the cross. Right. And he preached things that made people want to throw him off a cliff. Yep. Um yep. in Luke 4, he preached right. things that made people, you know, want to stone him. Like Mhm. Like if I'm not if people I don't I don't get any hate mail I I, I wish I got hate mail because then I would realize I'm doing a little bit more like Jesus like people don't <laughs> people just don't do that to me I don't know why I maybe I'm not causing enough trouble no because you're smarter than them and they know better well but still like I want people I want to be enough like Christ that people treat me like Christ mm. That's a word. And and people aren't treating me like Christ. People aren't wanting to crucify me. People are like, oh, Derek, we've got Derek. He's so nice. I mean, yeah, I'm nice, but but um, I don't get I don't get all this stuff that I that Jesus got. So anyway, um, we'll change that when we make your course. Uh, we will give people plenty of yeah, reason to but get you know what? You. Jesus did not charge anyone to learn his teachings. That is mm. Jesus, my guy. But also, yep, Jesus I, never wanted for anything. So, got to keep <laughs> got to keep that in mind as well. You don't well, got twelve close male friends that can be like looking out for you and stuff. Well, we got to fix that part too. I need I need. <laughs> also, right. he did have women followers. He had male and women followers, and they financially mm-hmm. supported him as well. You can see this in Luke chapter eight. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have uh, male and women fi- followers who can financially support you. So yeah, I know. You but I would let that happen. But the thing is, I won't do it as a quid pro quo thing. Like if people want to be a patron, like and say, like I'll 
all whatever. Um, but I'm not going to like charge something for like a, a specific amount for a specific thing that you don't get unless you pay for it. Okay. okay. I don't want to do that. Well, anyway, we shouldn't be talking about this because this is. A, we should probably just delete this so that our listeners don't hear all no, this. No, I'm gonna I'm let them hear it. I'm gonna let okay. them hear it. But I feel like I'm wasting time. Is there anything else we wanted to say about Moses one? I don't have anything to say about the temptation, and uh, you know, there's a scripture mastery in here. Uh, you know, my work, my glory, bring it past the immortality and eternal life of man. I don't really have nothing to say about that, but I just feel like since there's a scripture mastery in here, I do have to at least acknowledge it um, oh, yeah. before mm-hmm. we move on. I wanted to say something real quickly about um, Moses one seventeen. Okay. Um, Moses's character says, and he also gave me commandments when he called unto me out of the burning bush, saying, call upon God in the name of mine only begotten and worship me. I love the revelation, and I've said this before, about what, how the how God revealed God's self on uh, at the burning bush. Mm-hmm. Um, in Hebrew, it's "Eyeh Asher Eyeh," I am what I am, or I will be what I will be, and that's exactly queer. what queer people have to say: is mm-hmm. like we're not going to be someone we're not; we're going to be who we are. And this this idea of um, that that God's name is essentially a verb, right? Is is a power is empowering for us who are who are queer, who have to transition or who have to come out or have to whatever right. we have to do to live authentically. Like we're going to be, we're going to we, we can say I am who I am. I think that is very uh, very powerful. Mm. And. Um, I wanted to say one thing about verse 33. And worlds without number have I created, and I also created them for mine own purpose. And by the Son I created them, which is mine only begotten. I want to focus on this worlds without number because here we see that God's creation is bigger and more supreme and more majestic and more diverse and more um, mind-boggling than we can even imagine. Like, mm. people can't imagine anything outside of this, like, white heteronuclear family that has, you know, this this particular thing. Like, God loves diversity. Mm. And this isn't the only world, right? We Worlds without number. Like, we mm. literally cannot imagine the diversity of the creation of God. And so how can people limit God with the proclamation and say that that somehow limits God? It doesn't. It might limit you, but it doesn't limit God, and I don't think we've even begun to scratch the surface of how wide and deep God's creation is. And of course there's room for queer people. Like, mm-hmm. I think uh, when you look at it this way, there's absolutely room for diversity in terms of not just um, gender and gender identity and orientation and race, but Gen, uh, diversity of talent, diversity of of uh, uh, of, of lifestyle, and di- I mean, I don't mean like the gay lifestyle. I mean diversity of just different ways of of living your life, and, and mm-hmm. we're not all the same. And like, right. I don't know how we can have beautiful texts like this. And this gets back to why it's important to interpret 
the text in its its import in its time because here we are in the beginning of the American diversity experiment here in the 1830s right you've got a melting pot of 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 various peoples various religions various ways of life and this is one of the first kind of melting pot experiences where you don't have an established church where you don't have some of these things you have a multinational multi-ethnic uh, experiment begun here in America, and that's the context that you're that Smith is operating with. You're glorifying and ennobling humanity in the context of that diversity, and that's where you get. And worlds without number have I created. Mm-hmm. And I think it it makes more sense to say, well, this must be speaking to and illuminating uh, something that they needed to hear in the 19th century about how to live together, right? Anyway, um, that's all I had to say on Moses 1. I really don't have much to say on Abraham 3 because I'll get to that. We'll talk more about Abraham another week when we get more of Abraham. Uh I just wanted to mention Kolob because I like Kolob. Some people say, well, that's one of those weird things. (laughs) I kind of like that weirdness. I think there's something cool about Kolob. I think there's something cool about about that. we have some material about the pre-existence in here, which we'll talk more about another week. Just, I can always talk more, but I just think this Kolob thing is cool because um, I don't know. It's just very precious. It's it's uh, I don't know why I I can't really articulate it, but um, I think there's just something ennobling about Kolob itself, right. and um, yeah. Maybe it's just I like the the idea that there's there's endless possibilities and that there's uh, just kind of like the hymn says, if you could hide a collab, that there's no limit to God's diversity. There's no limit mm-hmm. to God's in- intelligence. There's no limit to God's um, knowledge. There's no limit to truth. There's no limit to to virtue. There's no limit to these things. Um, Those are actually my favorite verses in the song. Is like when we just have three or four verse, verses of. The song just saying there is no end to such and such, no end right, to such and such. Right, right. And you know, there is, is no end really to to everything I want to say, right? I could always go on and on and on. I could always go on and on. Like, we'll I don't even tell. Verse. See, I don't even, I hate to say this, but I don't even teach the public even a, a fraction of a percent of what I what I know and what I think when I've studied. It's just not possible. Again, to, why you need the course. Ah, course, whatever. Well, anyway. <laughs> So, so yeah. people have to people have to endure to the end of our episodes, and so uh, yeah. I don't want to spend too much time. Let's revisit Abraham some other time. That we can talk good. about the uh, the origin of the Book of Abraham and how to interpret that responsibly as well. And we will see situate it at that as well in the in terms of the reception history of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that's all. I'm, I'm going to stop talking now. <laughs> Sounds good, my friend. Okay then. Then before we uh, get to uh, wrapping things up, just want to remind you all that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate in LDS history more generally. 
The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or DialogueJournal.com slash Podcast Network. That's DialogueJournal.com slash Podcast Network. Brother Derek, where can people find us? People can find us at BeyondTheBlockPodcast.com. You can also find us at um, uh, on Facebook by searching for us, and then on Twitter and Instagram at BTBLDS. And do we still have that Glow page? Oh, yeah. I haven't plugged the Glow page in a while, yeah. but we still do have the Glow page. I've been putting it in the uh, show notes every week. I I am pretty sure I have. Um, but uh, yeah, that's still a thing. Like if you guys want to uh, contribute to the show in any way um, and, you know, just support this work that Derek and I are doing and perhaps these new things that we want to do, perhaps uh, a manual in the future or multiple Derek Knox courses, um, you can totally, uh, you know, contribute to the cause uh, you by going to glow, G-L-O-W dot F-M slash beyond the block. And, you know, just uh, contributing whatever you guys mm-hmm. feel is appropriate to contribute to our cause. And if you do so, I mean, you'll get access to the uh, Beyond the Block collaborator community. A lot of this stuff that I haven't been able to really share publicly about this mess I've been cryptically speaking about. All the information about that drama is in there. If you guys want to read about it or see it or talk about it, but also just ideas for episodes, ideas for initiatives, and just more people to connect with who have been uh, contributing positively to the work that Derek and mm-hmm. I have been doing, the work that all of us are doing. So again, that's uh, glow.fm slash beyond the block. Glow, G L O W dot FM slash beyond the block. Till we meet again next week. Bye, everyone.